Thank you guys all so much for coming out this morning. If we've never got the chance to meet before, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Cross Point, and it's my joy to get to spend this Sunday morning with all of you guys. So we've been taking this year, and in chunks, we've been studying the book of Acts together. Acts is a book in the New Testament written by a man named Luke, and it's really the second part, a continuation, if you will, of his first book, The Gospel According to Luke. And over the book of Luke and the book of Acts, Luke is showing us how God's unfolding plan all throughout Scripture to renew cultures and places and lives is being fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And last week, we saw something incredible happen. The passage we're going to look at today uh, is uh, off the heels, coming off the heels of this world-changing meeting that the church had, where they both clarified and confirmed the scope of salvation through the gospel of free grace. And today, in the passage we're about to look at, we're going to see the implications of that on the church here in Acts, but then also for our church here today. So you kind of think of it this way. If last week was the what of the gospel, this week is the so what. So what does that mean for us as a church? So if you would, please turn to Acts chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some paperback ones on the back tables there. We'll have the page number up in the corner of the screen. Please grab one of those, take it home with you. Acts chapter 16 is where we're going to be today, looking at verses 11 through 34. And this is what Luke writes for us as he himself joins into the story. From Troas, he says, we put out to the sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home. If you consider me a believer of the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept their practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, though, Paul and Silas were praying 
and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to the others who were in his house. At that moment, or at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. So some of you know, uh, up until a few years ago, my wife and I used to live in the city of Boston. And if you have never been to Boston, you really need to go there, right? It is an incredible city that has a culture and a life of its own that's unlike anything else. And like any good city, Boston has its own calendar of personal public holidays. And one of them is the running the Boston Marathon that happens every April. And a couple years back, they celebrated the 50th anniversary of something groundbreaking happening in the Boston Marathon. In 1967, Catherine Switzer became the first woman to ever officially run in the Boston Marathon. Now, to understand what was so groundbreaking about this, at the time, women weren't allowed to run in the Boston Marathon. So Switzer registered under the name K.V. Switzer, which due to kind of just a clerical oversight, nobody really checked into, and without knowing it, they issued an official race bib and number and spot in the Boston Marathon to a woman. And around mile marker four, one of the race officials, you can see pictured above there, spots Switzer and he gets enraged, and he starts chasing after her like this maniac, screaming, give me back my number and get out of my race. And the picture, when you look at it, is striking, isn't it? We can see all these different contrasts, physically, generationally, culturally, between the race official on one hand and Switzer on the other. And in many ways, this is a picture of how we understand ourselves as individuals and in the society that we live in. Zygmunt Bauman, who was a world-renowned sociologist, Polish man, says that there are essentially two words that you and I use to describe ourselves and other people. Us and them. In other words, the very nature of our hearts is to gather around people who are similar than us to be tribal, to be exclusive, to make distinctions amongst people, whether that's racial, cultural, political, generational, and to be similar, to gather around people who are similar to us, and then to exclude people who are different than us. I mean, this is what we can see in the picture above, isn't it? The race official trying to exclude the them, the woman, from running in the Boston Marathon. So let me ask you, who's the us 
that you're a part of? And who's the them in your life? You see, we can all do this us and them thinking. And as Christians in particular, what's at risk in it for us is the mission of the church and the very nature of the gospel itself. I mean, this is what Luke is trying to pull out in our passage here. In Acts chapter 15 last week, we heard about the scope of salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here in Acts chapter 16, we see that scope of salvation in the church that's built at Philippi. During Paul's journey here to the church at Philippi, we could probably safely assume he had multiple people come to faith. But what's interesting is Luke highlights only three of them for us. None of them particularly special or noteworthy. Two of them we don't even get their name of. A businesswoman, a female slave, and a Roman prison guard. Now, why would Luke do that? Three stories of three surprising conversions that I think if we view and look at in isolation, we miss the point of what Luke's trying to do. But when we put them all together, we see that Luke is painting this mosaic for us of what Jesus did, of who he is, and of who it's for. And in particular, I think there's four things that Luke wants us to see here in this passage today about the gospel coming to the city of Philippi and of the scope of salvation that we can see in it. I think he wants to see the height, the depth, the width, and the weight of salvation through Jesus. So first, the height of salvation. The first thing we see here in this story is Jesus reaching someone put together, someone more on the upper class of society than anything else, someone who we might describe as the up and the out, Someone who was confident, who was successful, who's closer to the upper class of society and yet still outside of a relationship with God. Uh, starting in uh, verse 13, Paul and Silas, who's his new travel partner here on his missionary journeys, meet this woman Lydia as they're heading out to this place of prayer, which was outside the city gate, this place where the Jewish women of that city would come and meet and pray together. And in it, right away, Luke tells us two things about this woman, Lydia. First, he says that she sells purple cloth. Now, purple cloth was a really expensive commodity at that time that largely came from the city of Thyatira that Lydia's from. So he tells us she sells this purple cloth, but then he also tells us that she's a worshiper of God. In other words, what he means is even though she wasn't born Jewish, Lydia, uh, believes in the one true God of the Bible. She reads the scriptures and prays to him, and she behaves just like a Jewish person without herself actually being Jewish. So in this picture that we see here that Luke's painting for us of Lydia, there's a couple of things that we can pull out right away. First, she's successful. She sells this really expensive product and apparently does well at it. I mean, later on in the story, we read how she's got a house big enough to spit a small crowd in it. Second, we see she's mobile. She's moved from the city of Thyatira to Philippi for her work, something that didn't really happen a whole lot in the ancient world at that time. We read that she's got some sort of family in verse 15, and that she's a moral person. 
She believes in the God of the Old Testament. She reads scripture. She prays. She tries to follow him. When we think about it, in a lot of ways, Lydia represents probably the average person that lives in the neighborhoods just surrounding the YMCA here. Maybe she resembles your story. Successful, you're doing well, you'd consider yourself a good person, but still wanting to know God personally. So she's closer to the upper class of society than anything else, but she's still outside of a relationship with God until Jesus reaches her. In verse 14, uh, Luke writes, uh, one of those listening was Lydia, and uh, when she heard the message that Paul was preaching, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. The message he's been preaching all throughout the book of Acts of the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And in that moment, Jesus, working through Paul and Silas reaches this successful, respectable, moral businesswoman and brings her into an intimate relationship with God. I mean, this is in part what her baptism in verse 15 signifies, that on her own she was outside of a relationship with God. And that even though she was a moral person, she was successful, she was respectable, she was upright, none of that could still help her know God at a personal level. She needed Jesus to do that. So first we see the height of salvation. We see Jesus reach someone that we might call the up and the out. Someone put together, someone successful, someone respectable, moral, but still doesn't personally know God. But if we want to see what Luke's trying to get across here, we can't just look at all these in isolation. We've got to move on and start putting the pieces together to see what he's trying to reveal to us about the scope of salvation through Jesus. Because we need to see what he shows us next. Not only the height of salvation, but the depth of salvation. You see, next, we see Jesus reach someone who's not put together, someone who's on the fringe of society, someone who's not the up and out, who we might better describe as the down and out. In verse 16, Paul and Silas are again going to the place of prayer. And they meet this woman who's possessed by this demonic spirit that makes her give these predictions of the future. And this slave woman, probably more a very young woman, maybe a girl more than anything else, is owned by these men who made money off of her when people would come to this girl slave and she would give these people predictions about their future and they would pay her for that and then she would give the money to her owners. And in verse 17, Luke says, she followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High who are telling you the way to be saved, which is probably these demonic spirits in her trying to detract people from Paul and Silas by making them look like they're associated with this wild, demon-possessed girl. And when you look at the contrast here that Luke's pulling out of Lydia on one hand and now this demonic-possessed girl who's a slave on the other hand who he just introduces us to now, the contrast between them is jarring. Lydia is this well-off businesswoman 
closer to the upper class of society than anything else. This girl slave is a fringe of society, barely a member of it at all. Lydia has money and property to her name, but this slave girl doesn't have a single thing to her name and really is probably somebody else's property more than anything else. Lydia is morally respectable, a religious person. This slave girl is possessed by this wild demon. Lydia has a list of things in her name that she could be proud of. This girl slave, she has hardly a shred of dignity to her at all. Maybe you feel like this, like you're on the fringe of society, searching for some sort of true sense of belonging somewhere. And in verse 18, Luke says, she kept doing this for many days. And finally, Paul became so annoyed, maybe a better translation of that would be deeply moved inside of him. And he tells the demon, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her, and immediately it does. And even though Luke doesn't give any specific details here to this girl slave now being converted and placing her faith in Christ and becoming a part of Christianity, I think in the context of the story that we're reading here of Lydia encountering Paul, meeting Jesus, being converted to Christianity, and then the Roman prison guard after that, Encountering Paul, meeting Jesus, being converted to Christianity, and this female slave right in the middle who encounters Paul, meets Jesus, I think Luke is very much wanting us to connect the dots there. That even though he doesn't explicitly state it, this girl slave is converted to Christianity and now is a member of this new church in Philippi that Jesus is forming here. And when you look at the contrast of these two, of this new church in Philippi, including both the up and out and the down and out, the put together and the fringe of society, we start to see a glimpse of the scope of salvation that Luke's trying to show us here. You see, in these two extremes, we are confronted head on with the us and them thinking that is deep inside of all of our hearts somewhere. You see, I'm willing to bet, I'm willing to bet this because your heart's like mine, that you'd be willing, probably likely, to exclude one of these two extremes, one of these two women from your life, and if you're a Christian, from your church and your community there in particular. Mirzlaw Wolf, who's a professor at Yale University, says there's four common ways that we all exclude people personally and socially from our lives. So the first one, he says, is exclusion by extinction. In this, we're excluding people from entrance into our group, or if you were a Christian here, uh, into our church in particular. In other words, there are certain people that because of their cultural or racial or political or just personal generational differences, we think, I really wish they weren't here right now. I'm not talking about being members of the church. I'm just talking about coming here through the front doors on a Sunday. When they sit next to us, we get uncomfortable. We want to move to another seat. That one's easy to spot, right? The next three, though, are a little more subtle. 
The next way, he says, is exclusion through abandonment. And in this, we exclude people from recognition. So we let them through the front door. We let them come be a part of what's happening maybe here at the church on Sunday mornings, but we don't acknowledge and recognize and celebrate their presence. And so after a while, they start to think, does anyone even care I'm here? Does anyone even notice I'm here? Third, he says, is exclusion by assimilation. So in this, we exclude people from community. In other words, we let them into our group. We let them into our space here on Sunday mornings, but we think, I'm, I'm fine interacting with this person in a public setting. I'm fine interacting with them on Sunday mornings. I would never invite them over for dinner at my house, though. And last, he says, is exclusion by dominance. In this, we're excluding someone's voice. So we might let them in the front door, let them into our community here, but we don't allow them to have any sort of influence over it. In other words, there's a table of leadership where decisions are being made, but we don't allow anyone from these certain categories to be a part of it. We think to ourselves, well, you know, they just, they just don't understand what we're trying to build here. We just need it to be this kind of tight-knit group right now. And maybe you've experienced one of these at Crosspoint. And if so, my, myself, the elders, we would love to know about it, to know how we can continue to grow in some of these areas. Maybe you're not a Christian, and you've experienced this at other churches, and this is what's just turned you off toward Christianity. Here's the thing. I think a lot of times we can do any one of these four with this malicious intent. But I think more often than not, if you're like me, then your sinful heart is so much more deceptive than that. I think a lot of times what can happen is instead we build up kind of this idealistic vision in our head of what the perfect church and what the perfect community in it should look like. And what we don't realize is generally, in this idealistic thought in our head, it's focused very much around us, about people who feel or look or act similar to us. And even though we don't realize it, it's still very much built on this us and them mentality. Or before we even realize it, we unknowingly end up excluding certain people from coming and encountering the gospel in our church. And this is where certain modern people would say, that's the whole point. We need to just get rid of any sort of dichotomies, any sort of uh, binary distinctions that we can draw on society. Th those things don't even exist. Those are just a product of moralistic, religious, traditional worldviews. What we need to do is focus on how we're all connected, how we're all similar, how everyone's view is right and equal to themselves, and how no one has the right to exclude anyone from any sort of group. If you're a Christian, maybe you think, hey, wh why don't we stop maybe talking about certain doctrines that are divisive or offensive? Let's just focus on things that will kind of be more inclusive and bring more people into our church here. Uh, and Charles Taylor, who's a, a world-renowned Canadian philosopher, is one of many uh, voices who would say that that line of thinking has some pretty big flaws in it that, in the end, end up undermining what it tries to achieve. The biggest one being that, in the end, you haven't really solved the problem you set out to address. 
All you've done, Taylor would say, is just create a new dichotomy, a new us in them. Only this time, the us is the modern people who don't see any sort of dichotomies, who are exclusive, and the them are the traditional, moralistic, religious people who are very exclusive in what they do. See, we can't get around it. And in the end, the problem isn't that we have differences. God created us with diversity. He loves and he celebrates our diversity. The problem is we take our differences and we turn them into moral categories. And through them, we start to assign worth to people based on their differences. And in the end, all we're doing is really just trying to recover ourselves a certain sense of worth that because of our sin has been marred inside of us. But in this third person that Luke's about to introduce us to, Jesus will use Paul and Silas to finally shatter any sort of us and them thinking that we could put on ourselves as individuals as groups, or here particularly if you're a Christian, as a church. So we've seen the height and the depth of salvation. Now we're going to see the width of salvation. In other words, we've seen Jesus reach someone put together, someone on the fringe of society. Now we're going to see him reach someone who's at the end of their rope. Not the up and out, not the down and out. Someone who's maybe more just way out. To the point that they're about to take their own life. In verse 25, Paul and Silas are again at a place of prayer, but a very different one than when they started. They're in prison after being beaten and flogged by the city magistrates. We don't have time to get into all the details of the story, but essentially, the men who owned this uh, young girl who was a slave, they get really angry when Paul and Silas completely ruin their whole money-making scheme. And so they manipulate the city officials. They're kind of tapping into their nationalism and their racism to throw Paul and Silas into prison. After that, they get them beaten with rods and flogged. And in verse 26... As Paul and Silas are in prison, singing hymns and praying, it says, suddenly, Luke writes, there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Now, this is a problem if you're the jailer. You see, at that time, if you were a prison guard in Rome, if you lost an inmate, the result was you were killed as punishment for that. So imagine this prison guard wakes up to the sound of not a prisoner, but an entire prison doors flying open and all of these inmates who are about to let loose. And it says, as he woke up, he saw the prison doors open and he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all in here. And the jailer calls for lights. He rushes in, falls trembling before Paul and Silas, brings them outside and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? In verse 31, Luke says, Paul and Silas replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. 
Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. And the jailer becomes filled with joy because he believed in God. He goes from being suicidal to overwhelmed with joy in meeting Jesus. And when we put all three of these stories together, we see that Luke very intentionally chose each and every one of these of probably some of the other people he could have selected for this. And it wasn't by mistake. You see, if you were a Jewish man at that time, you woke up every morning and you led a prayer in your household that said, God, thank you in part that I am not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. And here, in the city of Philippi, who do we see are three of the founding members of this church? A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. How can that be? Well, to understand how, to, under, to really understand the width of salvation Luke's trying us to see, we've got to look at one subtle but loaded word that Luke and also Paul say in this story here. Lord. Remember why Luke's writing the book of Acts? He's writing it to show us how God's unfolding plan all throughout the Bible to renew cultures and places and lives is being fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But ironically, the way Luke shows us this isn't generally by showing us what Jesus did, but by showing us who Jesus is. And one of the main ways that Luke shows us who Jesus is is by the titles that Luke gives to Jesus. And if you look at the titles that Luke gives him, something really interesting happens from the gospel according to Luke to the book of Acts. We see this transition happen in the titles that Luke gives to Jesus. Whereby in the book of Luke, he gives Jesus these titles as this long-awaited prophesied servant. But by the time we get to the book of Acts, he now gives Jesus these titles as this kingly, royal person. In other words, Luke shifts from Jesus as Messiah to Jesus as Lord. And it's in who Luke eventually shows Jesus to be, the Lord, that we see how an Asian businesswoman, a Greek girl slave, and a Roman prison guard can all become into an intimate relationship with God and be a part of his people. Because in the Apostle Paul calling Jesus Lord there, he's connecting Jesus with the saving God of the Old Testament, declaring that him and Jesus are one, giving Jesus the full rights and authority over God's promised salvation to all of the nations, which as we read on in the Bible will one day culminate in people from every race and tribe and tongue standing before Jesus in eternity, praising the Lord of their salvation, who's now come to the city in Philippi here through Luke and Paul and Silas to show the scope of salvation by making a church of all different types of people. And this is what Luke wants us to see and to embody ourselves right now. That we too would be a church that experiences and shows the width of salvation. Not a church that's tribalistic, that's exclusive, that's tough to crack into, but not a church that's relativistic, that waters down our doctrine, 
to try to be more inclusive, but a church that digs down deeper into the gospel and allows that then to produce a community where we see all different types of people gathered together through their common faith in Jesus Christ. So I think there's three ways, three easy ways that we can do this. First, create a space. What I mean by that is intentionally create spaces. Here at Crosspoint, on Sunday mornings, in the community that you're a part of, for people who are different than you. Whether that's someone who's culturally different, generationally, racially, just personally, politically, any of those things. Create a space for those people who are different than you. Expect them to come. Pray for them to be there, to experience the gospel. So it first starts by just us really easily creating a space. But then second, I think we need to be vigilant against the barriers. And by that, what I mean is we need to have this humble but urgent impulse to confront any unnecessary barriers that we put up for someone coming in and experiencing the gospel here at Crosspoint, even if that means you have to allow yourselves to experience a barrier that you've unknowingly created yourself. And then the third way is to practice unity ourselves. See, if we want to be a church where all different types of people come and experience the gospel of Jesus, then we need to be a place where people can come in from all the surrounding neighborhoods and see people who are all different spectrums and spots on the cultural and societal map in the Winter Park area here, not just coexisting, but celebrating each other. And this is something that, if I'm being honest, I think we, we do well here at Crosspoint. I'm really encouraged by the way that we practice unity ourselves. But what Luke's doing us here is inviting us to experience that even more. So how do we do that? Do we just follow the example of Paul and Silas here? Maybe that's what we're tempted to think. Uh, there's this scene in the Netflix show, The Crown, which is about Queen Elizabeth, where she asks her grandmother, who herself was once queen, why is it that we even still have kings and queens anymore? And her grandmother, like any good kind of former monarch, says, here's why. The monarchy is God's gift to humanity. By showing them this dignified version of what a human is supposed to be and gracing them with this ideal example that people can now pull themselves up to. And I think a lot of times as a church, this is how we can read the book of Acts. This story here in Acts 16 of Paul and Silas is God's gift to the church, showing us this ideal example of what we're supposed to embody that then we'll then pull ourselves up to. And if that's how we read the book of Acts in this passage here, we're missing so much more of what Luke has for us. You see, the only way we can truly become a church where all different types of people come together and know and experience Jesus Christ is if we lastly see the weight of salvation. See, we've looked, when we look deep enough at who Luke shows us Jesus is, he eventually shows us what Jesus did. And in seeing that, we experience the weight of salvation. You see, the problem in our sinful hearts is that we take differences in us, culturally, politically, personally, generationally, and we make them into moral issues. 
And the only way we're going to overcome that is if we stare into the face of the deepest dichotomy that truly does exist, the one between us and God. The way the Bible often describes God is holy, which is a word that at its core simply just means other. And it's this otherness of God that becomes to define who God is. That even though we bear his image to a certain degree, there's always a distinction between the creator and the creation, between God and us. But unlike the distinctions that I draw, this one has very much become a moral issue too. Because of our sin, you and me, now not only inwardly, but outwardly, have separated ourselves from God, meaning that he is now very much in the scope of the universe, the us, and we have become the them. And it's something that, if I'm being honest, I don't really like to dwell on that much. I would much rather live with this fictitious view of myself than face up to the fact that I've failed to live up to the glory of God, and that on my own, there's nothing I could do to change that. And in his compassion, God wants to be in a relationship with us. But in his holiness, he can't let that happen without a price being paid. And so in an act of God's holy love, Jesus, God himself, comes down, dies on a cross, and takes the punishment that we deserve so that we can now be in a relationship with him and a part of his people. I mean, <laughs> this is madness, I mean, think about it. You know what our us and them distinctions really are? It's us looking at people different than us and saying, I wish you could just be more like me. But you know what God does? He does the opposite of that. He becomes like us. He becomes like us, and then he dies for us. Let me ask you, what other person do you know? What other God have you ever heard of who would not only identify with but then take, give up his life for the other. Not because they needed to, but because he so loved the other that he wanted to. You see, this right here is why Paul can get up and declare that Jesus has the full rights as Lord to bestow the gift of salvation to all these different types of people because he first bought that gift with his own blood. This, here at the cross, this is the heart of Christianity. The only us that ever truly mattered. Dying for the them that was you and me. If you're a Christian, see the weight of salvation. See Jesus bearing that for you and let that fuel us becoming even more a church where all different types of people experience the gospel, where the height, the depth, and the width of salvation is shown in everything we do. And if you're not a Christian, look at the cross and the holy love of God that sent his only son to die for the them that is you and me. We're going to spend some time reflecting on this word now on what we've heard from God, some ways we can repent, some ways we can be reminded of the promise here. But before we do, I'm going to pray for us.
Heavenly Father, thank you for this incredible gift that through the church being formed here at Philippi, we see the height, the depth, the width, but most of all, we experience the weight of salvation. That in your holy love led your son Jesus to come and die for the them that was me because of my sin. That was all of us because of our sin. Not because you needed to, because you so loved us that you wanted to. Spirit, I pray through the rest of our service here that you would continue to now press this truth into our hearts. Amen.